Father, I think as we come to this text in Romans 3, oh God, I pray that you, by your grace, would help us to, to really lavish in the gospel of Christ. May we rest in Jesus. May we realize, God, just the goodness of all that he has done for us. God, just thank you for this passage. I would pray that you would use me to illuminate. God, help us to see wonderful things from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're coming this morning, as I alluded to in my prayer, to a, a very important passage of Scripture. It's been called the Acropolis of the Bible. That is like the, the chief high point of the Bible, the most prominent thing. Luther called it the chief point, a central place of the epistle of Romans, and indeed the chief point in all the Bible. It has been used to convert people from their sin. William Cooper, the famous hymn writer, was converted through the words of our text today. John Piper wrote, If I were asked, what's the most important paragraph in the Bible? I think this paragraph would be the most important that I would name because, he says, it goes to the very root of the Christian gospel and lays bare the heart of God like few other texts. Now, the reason why it's so important is really because it explains the gospel, but it does so in a, in a sort of unique way, is that it, it explains how, indeed, God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right? In other words, how God can forgive. Because people have distorted views and images of that. I, I remember having Coke at McDonald's one time with a non-Christian who happened to attend uh, a church and uh, was seemingly interested in the things of Christianity. And so as I had uh, a Coke there, I was talking with him and kind of prodding with him to see, you know, what he knew about God and what he knew about Christ and what he knew about our salvation and, and what he might understand about the Scriptures. So I just might, might know, like, where to dive in to begin to talk to him. And I remember him making an astonishing statement. He, he said this, in talking of forgiveness, he said, well, of course God will forgive me. He made me, didn't he? As, as if the, the creation of him implied this um, gracious treatment. Right? Because this picture this man had in mind when we thought about God was this, this God who created us. And out of obligation somehow to us, he would, of course, forgive all of those that he made. Now that's not understanding Romans 9 at all, that God makes vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use. Uh, we do that in our home. God does that as a creator. There's nothing implicit that makes us forgivable. God made us. He loves us, this man said. And he'll demonstrate his love by forgiving and not holding our sins against us. And that's all well and good. And many of those statements are true that God is a, a gracious and loving, kind God. But he missed one thing, that God is a just God. And he, he can't just overlook sin. Uh, see, a, a just God always judges fairly, and cannot let sin go unpunished. Now, a police officer might be lenient to you and give you a warning rather than a ticket, and and an earthly judge might accept a plea bargain, right? Admission of, of guilt in exchange for a lesser sentence so you don't prolong the trial. But God won't be lenient, and God doesn't accept Plea bargains. He adheres strictly to his law. He takes no bribes. He won't bend. He won't move from the, his command. In fact, he will punish 
every sin ever committed. See, God simply can't overlook sin like this man I was speaking to at McDonald's that day. He just can't do that because his righteousness compels him to judge that. His justice won't allow it. You know, and I think about us. So, so we, the way we deal with sin, we're, we're good at overlooking sin. Because that's our only action, actually, sometimes. Um, but often that's how we do. We, we, we let transgressions pass with by. And the Proverbs say that's a good thing. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's a good thing. It's a glory to overlook an offense. Something done wrong to you. But, but what we can do and just kind of, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's something that God can never do. Because God can never overlook an offense. Because if he does, it means he's not just. And God is just in every way. So how does God forgive? Like, like how, we know God is loving and he's kind, he's gracious, he's forgiving. But how, how can he be that and just at the same time? Well, our text, Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26 tells us how he does this. And that's why it's so important in all the Bible. Now, if you've come here without a Bible this morning, there's him, there, are him, uh, there are pew Bibles in front of you. Not him, there are hymnals too, all right? Page 940, you can find uh, Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance... He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, verse 21 begins with the word but. And in this case, Hannah, what is this kind of word? This is a a blessed but is what this is. Okay, she likes that. She thinks that's kind of funny. That's why I asked her. It was unprompted, unscripted. I didn't pro- promise her ahead of time. It is a, a blessed but. It, it, it's, it's one of those things that, 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 that the Bible uses to bring large contrast between this way and between another way. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And we too were dead in our sins. And by nature we were children of wrath. Bad news. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. But God. Titus 3. If we ourselves once were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred, hated by others and hating one another. Titus 3.4. But when... The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing and regeneration renewing by the Holy Spirit. We were in dire straits, but God, 
rescued us and brought things. That's a blessed but. And here we have a blessed but. Romans chapter 3 verse 21. And, and the setup to this but isn't just two verses back or three verses back like in Ephesians. It's, it's 64 verses back. Clear back to chapter 1 and verse 18. You can turn back there. It says this. Says this For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, suppress, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Paul continues on for, for two entire chapters about how bad it is. How terrible it is. The contrast could hardly be bigger. This is bad, 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 bad news. But comes the good news. The bad news is this, that we're all sinners. Whether Gentiles or Jews. Gentiles chapter 1, Jews chapter 2, chapter 3 verse 9. We are all under sin as Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. And Paul's been hammering that truth into us for two chapters. And for us at Rock Valley Bible Church, since October, we took a break during Christmas time, but October and November and almost all of January, three full months of just opening up the Scripture, just banging us with our sin. But that all changes today. Because Paul's making, making a turn He's been talking about sin, and now comes the salvation section of the book of Romans. Chapter 6 and 7 will be the sanctification section. Chapter 8 will be the security section. Chapters 9 through 11, the sovereignty section, and then service, 12 and following. But right here, this is the very verse, this is the very but, this blessed but, hinges and changes things in the book of Romans. As we begin looking into our salvation, he dives, Paul does, First into the righteousness of God. That is the title of my message this morning is the the righteousness of God. And it is appropriate because Paul speaks of God's righteousness four times in these six verses. I just want to read through it again and point out each time the righteousness of God comes there. So if you have a pencil in your Bible, you can just even circle righteousness of God. Because right there four times is the key to this text. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Chapter 3, verse 21. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show, here it is, God's righteousness. It's not the righteousness of God, but it's God's righteousness. That's number three. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show, fourth time, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Four times, it's all about the righteousness of God. And that's our salvation is really all about the righteousness of God. But you can even go beyond that because three more times Paul speaks about righteousness, only it's translated in the ESV differently using just or justified or justifier. That's the same word. So you might, you might read this and we'll just, we could read the whole thing again. But look at verse 24. And we are justified. Literally in the Greek, it's we are made righteous. There's that righteousness word again. And down in verse 26, the very last one, so that God might be just, that is he might be righteous, 
and he might be the justifier, and he might be the one making righteous. So seven times in these six verses, justice, righteousness is used. Four times of God, four times of his action. This passage is all about the righteousness of God, how God makes us righteous. So let's dig into our text. My first point this morning is that the righteousness of God, verse 21, comes not from the law. The righteousness of God comes not from the law. That's what we read in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Now, we read in verse 20, as we finished up last week, that Paul just declared, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, right, by your works of the law, you will not be justified in God's sight. You will not obtain righteousness through your obedience to God. It just comes a different way. In verse 20, we read that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And people often mistake the law as the path to righteousness. But the law really shows us our sin. And rather than bringing us to righteousness, the law ought to bring us to despair. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Because when we see what God requires and we see how far we we go, we understand that we're done. Chapter 3, verse 10, we are not righteous. Chapter 3, verse 12, no one does good, not even one. As it brings us into despair of our sin, we, we seek for a Savior. And indeed, the Old Testament does speak of a Savior. That's what the last half of verse 21 is talking about. Although law and prophets bear witness to it, bear witness to the righteousness of God, they are bearing witness to the fact that that we can't obtain it by ourselves, but there's a, a Messiah to come. Moses prophesied of another prophet that would arise to lead the people of God. The prophet spoke of one who would come and, and bear our sin upon his shoulders. Isaiah 53, verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That's a testimony of the law and the prophets. And we often look at that Christmas time of all the prophecies of, of Christ's coming. We just went through that. We don't need to spend time of that today. But they testified to the way of righteousness, not through themselves and the, the commands they gave. In fact, often the prophets said, repent, repent and turn from your ways. Seek the Lord. But they often said, and look for the one who is to come. As I think about the law and I think about getting to God, I mean, here, here's, a, here's an illustration you might think of. Think, think about um, this road that we're traveling on, right? And we're, we're going to reach God, but, but all of a sudden we've got this big mountain right, right in front of us. And, and the road goes right up and over the mountain. And uh, we don't have four-wheel drive. We can't get up. In fact, that's too steep for any wheeled drive. Um, it's just impossible to go back. No switchbacks on this mountain. It's just, it's just right up and over, and the mountain's called Mount Sinai. God's on the other side of the mountain, but we need to get up up and over. And, and we realize that, that we can't. We just can't do that. And in our despair, right, we, we look behind us, and here comes Jesus with his drilling equipment and paving equipment. And he comes. He's not going up. He's just he's going to start boring a hole right into that hill. And he starts boring that hole and makes a tunnel and paves the road and makes it smooth and straight and basically takes us to God beyond the mountain, a different path rather than the law. He takes us on the smooth path of grace that he himself 
design and set forth for us. That's what we're talking about. God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law, right, in the person of Jesus. We'll see that. And we see the second point here, that the righteousness of God comes not through the law, but it comes through faith. Verse 22. The righteousness of God, picking that up from verse 21. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And there, there's the gospel that, that we can attain to the righteousness of God simply by believing in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's what we, we stand upon. An amazing thing it is that we sinners, though we be, can be made righteous through believing in Jesus Christ alone. And it matters not whether you're a Jew who had the covenantal promises of God or, or the Gentiles who were strangers to the covenant or, or whether you were raised in the church knowing the Bible stories from youth or, or whether you were raised in ignorance of Jesus. It matters not for, as verse 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, all of us have failed to reach this mark that God requires, His glory we failed to obtain that 100%. And truth be known, you know, we're not pushing an A or an A minus, okay? We're sub F, okay? We're looking to survive. Um, you know, it's a little bit like I'm coaching a, bas- a basketball team with David, my son, on it. And uh, the other day, let's see, it's a week and a half ago, our team did so bad they turned the scoreboard off, okay? Uh, David scored two baskets. And that was our team's points, okay? Um, it, it, was, it was in the area of 60 to 4, maybe, or 50. So it was bad, okay? Um, that's more like what it's about. When you're trying to, trying to keep the law, missing the mark, we all have missed the mark. But what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and He condemned sin in the flesh. And all we simply need to do is believe, trust, and embrace Jesus Christ by faith. And trust in His righteousness, not our own. And that's how we're saved from our sin. It's, it's, it's amazing. And it's amazing as you talk with people how they resist it. Like people want to do something. They want to, they want to merit something. They want to know, i got to do something. It's, no, it's not. It's grace. It's given. It's a gift. But this is where Paul has been heading ever since chapter 1, verse 16. Why don't you turn back there? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is he your hope? He really is your only hope. Either you can believe in Jesus, or you can go it alone and try to climb that hill. It's your only hope for forgiveness of sins. It's your only hope for keeping you until that final day. He is the power of God for salvation. And that is salvation, yes, salvation for our sins now, but that's also salvation to the final day, preserving us until we are there with Christ. Do you believe? Now, I'm not asking you if you profess to believe, because there are many 
in this world, in our society, who profess to believe in Jesus, but don't really believe. They know enough that salvation comes through Jesus. They they know enough of the Sunday school answer. Yes, Jesus is always the answer to every Sunday school question. And they, but they they don't really trust. They know little of what a life of faith looks like. Verse seventeen: For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's all about faith, as is written: The righteous shall live by faith. That is, the one who is righteous will trust God throughout their whole lives. This week I had an opportunity to visit a, a man who's facing great difficulties in his life. I was out walking in the neighborhood, uh, greeted him, and uh, we've had very little interaction before, but we've had some, and he, and he said, you know what, I, I was really thinking about talking to you. I said, okay. And so we set up an appointment and went over to his house the next day, and I said, are you a Christian? He said, yes. And uh, I said, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he, he quoted Romans 10.9, just confess Jesus as Lord and believe and that's, he said that, so that was encouraging. And I asked him if he goes to church any place. And he said, no. Uh, he said, I used to go. As I dug further, what that means is well over a decade ago, probably two decades ago is when he was really ever in church. I asked him if he had a Bible, and he said, I think so. Um, and as I dug further, I think so means that he might be somewhere deep in his closet underneath all of his clutter. He might find a Bible there. Um, and then one of the things I, I said, you, you know, Jesus said this, is that you will know people by their fruits. A good tree will bear good fruit and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. And I said, well, you look at your life. What, what kind of fruit do you have in your life? Is it good fruit or bad fruit? And um, he kind of said, well, bad fruit. And, and I know enough of his life um, to know that there's a lot of bad fruit in his life. Okay? Um, he, he was not living by faith in his life. It just was not demonstrating there. Instead, it was flesh, full throttle, full throttle like police at his home several times. Just not, not walking right. And um, I told him, may I suggest to you that perhaps you're not a Christian? And then I took him to Matthew 7 where it says many people are going to profess to know God, enter, and they're not. And then I took him to Ephesians 2 and just showed him how salvation is all of grace. Right? Don't, you don't have to work your way. You don't have to get back at it. It's just, it's just all of grace. Just believe. But, but see, then when you believe, God's going to transform you and, and change you. There's going to be fruit in your life. He brings, right? The fruit of the Spirit brings some, some change. It brings a heart's desire. It brings a, a manifestation. But I pressed him to believe. I've been praying for him earnestly it was the last couple of days. I believe that the gospel's powerful. Romans 1, 16 and I believe that, that I spoke with him in this dining room table is powerful to bring him to salvation if indeed he would believe. Which, of course, salvation comes through faith. So let's go to my third point. It comes not from the law, verse 21. It comes through faith, through faith verses 22 and 23. And salvation, right, the righteousness of God comes by grace. That's what verse 24 talks about. Look at there. And we are justified. That is, we are made righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the great reality of our salvation. 
Our salvation comes by grace. It comes to us as a gift. We haven't earned it in any way, shape, or form. God has simply given it to us. And next week, God willing, we're going to begin at verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. See, when God gives you a gift, there's no boasting as if you earned that gift in any way. There's no boasting as if you were good in any way to merit God's favor. It's all God's grace upon your life. And isn't, that's what grace means. Grace means one-sided. You can't boast. When it comes to us, it's not because of what we've earned, but because we are objects of divine favor. So that's how we come to the Lord. That, that's Paul's point over in chapter 4. We get there the week after that. Look at chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, that's how our salvation comes to us. Not because we've worked for it. Because God has graciously, of his free grace, chosen to give it to us. See, verse 24 doesn't say this. We are justified by works as what is due us. No, rather we are justified by his grace as a gift. Grace means all of God. It means none of us. See, God hasn't transformed us to be acceptable in his sight. He has redeemed us to bring us into his presence And that's what this word redemption is talking about at the end of verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, that's the marketplace word. That's where you go and you purchase something. You buy things. See, sin demanded a price to be paid in order to be taken from the world to God. And Christ Jesus paid that ransom price upon the cross, purchasing us, bringing us into his presence. And in our next point, our final point, uh, fourth point this morning, shows exactly how that redemption was applied, how it was accomplished. And, and right here, I hope you see, this is why the importance of this paragraph in all the Bible. The righteousness of God, verse 21, comes not from the law. Verse 22 and 23, it comes through faith. Verse 24, it comes by grace. And here it is, verse, our fourth point this morning, our last point, comes by propitiation. By propitiation, verses 25 and 26. Speaking of Jesus, says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now you see the word propitiation there in verse 25. And when you hear this word, there's another word that you should immediately think of, and that word is wrath. Good. So when you hear propitiation, wrath. Because that's what propitiation is talking about. It's talking about wrath, it's talking about anger, and propitiation particularly means satisfying Anger. In this case, propitiation through Jesus means satisfying God's anger. See, because God's anger and justice 
is upon the sin of the world. That's been the whole point of Romans so far, is that we all stand condemned under the weight of God's wrath. But Jesus Christ satisfied his anger. That is, he propitiated that anger. He died as a wrath-bearing substitute, thereby redeeming us, verse 24, from our sins because he has placated the wrath of God. All right, so let's Let's think about another example. This is the best way to, to think about that, right? You're cruising down the highway a bit faster than you should be driving, and you look in your view, view mirror, and you see some flashing lights, and your heart starts beating really fast, and you go, oh, no. And you look down at your speedometer, and then you say, oh, no. And so then you pull over, and the cop pulls behind you and walks up to your, your window and um, tells you you're speeding. And the policeman is perfectly just, doesn't give you a warning. He gives you a ticket. At that point, when you have that ticket in your hand, there is tension between you and the state. Because the state has said, you broke this law, you need to be punished, and a ticket means punished with X amount of dollars. And you've got to pay the consequences. In that case, the sum of money. But listen, when you go to the courthouse or wherever you go, or you mail it in, or you check, or you go online, or whatever, and once you pay that... From the state's perspective, it's absolved and it's gone and the state has been propitiated. The wrath of the state upon you for your ticket has been solved with some dollars. See, that's what Jesus did on the cross. The the consequence of our sin is God's anger and hell and death because God doesn't give leniency. Jesus paid the price for our sin. So God is no longer angry with us. Instead, and this maybe goes beyond where the state does, God is now happy with us. He's delighted with us. He's calling us a children of God. We are a fellow heir with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And that's how central the cross of Christ is, is that God poured out his wrath on Jesus so that payment could be made for our sin, so that he could forgive us because that sin has been paid all right, let's think about another situation. Okay, this is a biblical situation. Think about King David. Right? King David sinned. He sinned greatly. With Bathsheba, you know the story. <clears throat> How did God forgive his sin? How did God forgive King David's sin? Did he just look past the sin? Well, he, he can't. Can he forgive sin without punishing sin? No, because that would be unjust. What about Abraham or Jacob or Moses or any of the Old Testament saints? How did God forgive those sins of those saints? Did he simply overlook them? Well, it's interesting. The answer in verse 25 says yes and no. Look at verse 25. This is Jesus. Jesus whom God put forth as a propitiation of his blood to be received by faith. This propitiation of Jesus was to show God's righteousness. Right? In other words, right? God had to put his righteousness on display because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So does God pass over sins? Yes and no. But yes, God passed over former sins. He passed over Abraham's lying. And he passed over Jacob's deceit. And he passed over Moses' murder. And he passed over Aaron and Miriam's murmuring. And he passed over the adultery of David. And he passed over the myriads of sins of all the Old Testament saints. But that brought incredible tension into the world. 
Maybe we felt it, maybe we didn't, but God certainly felt it. Like his justice was at stake. If he's going to forgive these saints and they've sinned, he can't just overlook sin because his justice is at stake. He's a perfectly just God. But in his patience, he did because he knew there'd be a day when the accounts would be settled, when Jesus would come and die on the cross, and thereby establishing his justice. Yes, I am just. See, with the coming of Jesus, he settled his accounts. In in other words, right? Jesus paid for the sins of Abraham, Jacob, and Moses, and David in his death. Look again at verse 26 now. It explains, right, how he could pass over these sins and his divine forbearance and how in Jesus he shows his righteousness because it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, and only because of the sacrifice of Jesus, can God be perfectly just in passing over sins. But he doesn't really pass over the sins because Jesus takes the punishment that our sins deserve. The price for our sin is paid for by Jesus. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, now God can be the justifier, the one who makes righteous, and he can be just at the same time. Now today, it's interesting, we live 2000 AD, 2017, whatever, we look back to Jesus, but the previous saints of the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus, and Jesus paid for their sins. So, so think about another illustration, might, might be this, might be a, a credit debit card. Okay, right when you go to the store and uh, you ever, you, whatever you're, you're buying, whether it's gasoline, you're buying groceries, you're buying this or that, and uh, you, you go up to the counter and you pull out your, your credit card, right? And sometimes they ask you, was it credit or debit? Well, let's just take credit. What's credit mean? Credit means I give them plastic, they swipe it, they, they do the chip thing, whatever, and uh, basically it's a promise. I will pay it in the future. Is, is what that is. That's what God has promised to the Old Testament saints. See, when God passed over their sins, um, these sins weren't forgotten, really, or forgiven. Maybe they were. How that all works, I'm not sure. But they were paid for finally when Jesus died upon the cross, when his wrath was there, paid in full at the death of Christ. And the Old Testament saints used credit cards. We today use debit cards. What's a debit card? You go to your store, you buy your gas, your food, whatever, and and you pull out your card. Mine is a credit debit card, so this is good, but I'm on the other side of the cross. So uh, is it credit or debit? Uh, debit, please. And what's debit? Is well, I got this bank account, right? I got some money in that bank account, and as soon as I do this, and as soon as I do the pin, that money is then taken from my bank account, which is there, and then applied to the item I'm purchasing. And we are good from that moment on. I don't have to wait till the month's end to... To pay a bill, that's just what it is. And that's where we stand today because Christ Jesus, when he died, he bore all this wrath and there are sins still yet to be forgiven. He hasn't yet fully transacted. But that's how the, that's how, that's how the death of Christ works. Is it God could pass over? He did pass over. Look again, verse 25. 
Jesus was put forward as propitiation in his blood to be received by faith, right? We believe Jesus by his faith, right? He appeases the wrath of God. And he did that so as to show God's righteousness because there was a problem with God's righteousness when he showed forbearance in passing over the former sins. But now, in this time, he shows his righteousness by forgiving sin in Jesus. And that way, God can be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. I hope you see how important this is. Here's, here's the implication of that, is that Christianity is the only religion in the world kept, that can hold up the justice of God and the grace of God together. Or, or the, the love of God and the judgment. Christianity is the only thing that can do that because of the cross, right, is where justice and love meet. Do you know there are many in the world who are hoping, just hoping, that God is unjust? There are many people in the world hoping that God is unjust. Anyone who just says, well, I hope I'll be forgiven, or I think my good outweighs my bad. So, so think, about, think about the Muslim. You don't need to know a lot about Muslim theology, but to know this, that in the day of judgment, the Muslim believes he'll stand before God, and the judge will weigh the good and the bad. And if the good outweighs the bad, he'll be led into heaven. And if the bad outweighs the good, well... Then he condemns. He'll be gone. And the Muslim believes that if his good outweighs the bad, that God's going to be merciful and just overlook those transgressions. Missing that Allah will then no longer be just. The Muslim hopes in an unjust God while professing a just God. And the same with the Jew. A Jew sits in the same, same hope. The, the hope of the Jewish world is that God will not be just. I mean, God established sacrifices for Israel to perform. They were intended to teach the Israelites that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But since the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the Jews haven't performed any sacrifices at all. God told them to sacrifice for atonement, but they've stopped sacrificing. The Jew today, think about that, since AD 70 for the last 2,000 years is like, they don't say this, but this is really saying, I hope God will be unjust to forgive me without a sacrifice. That's what they're hoping for. They're pleading. I mean, now there's truth to that in some regard. Hosea 6.6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So, so God has even said in the Old Testament, it's not the sacrifice I desire. I desire mercy. But still, the Jews have been taught about how if they sin, they need a sacrifice. They didn't sin, they need a sacrifice. And all of a sudden, they've gone for 2,000 years without a sacrifice. They're hoping that God is not just. That's how many stand today, hoping that God is not just. That God is unfair. That God lets his justice slide. But listen, God is, is not. He is perfectly fair. He's more fair than any policeman or judge you've ever seen. So how, how can God be just and also forgive sin? By looking over the sins previously committed because he knew full well that one is coming that's going to give him ability to forgive sin. God demonstrating his own righteousness in punishing Jesus for those sins in the place of those he would forgive. So God is just and then he punished Jesus. He is justifier in that he declares righteous those who have faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul says. He might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. And that's how God can forgive our sin in Jesus Christ. Because God has punished him. 
And he's simply demanding that we believe. There's grace right there. He's not demanding working. He's not demanding praying. He's not demanding any penance. He's demanding that we just simply believe and trust in him and walk a life of faith. Listen, your forgiveness, your salvation come in no other way except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that God will punish every sin in the universe ever committed? He will either punish the one committing that sin or he will punish Jesus in his stead. Every sin you commit is going to be punished. Are you going to be punished for it? Or is Jesus going to be punished for that sin in your place? And that's the gospel, right? Jesus bought us. He took the wrath. He propitiated the wrath of God for us. And the news doesn't get any better than that. And really, this is the meaning behind the Lord's Supper. The ransom has been paid. A substitution has been made. And in Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness. Now, you remember on that last night, and we segue here to the Lord's Supper, right? That, that last night before Jesus was betrayed, what did he do? He took the bread. He said, what? This is my body for you, right? It's going to be crushed. It's going to be pierced. It's going to be struck down and destroyed. I'm going to take the punishment for you. This cup he took, he says, that is the new covenant in my blood, right? This is, this is the covenant of a, of a new covenant, and it's symbolizing, again, that, that the death of Jesus is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, right? This, this cup is for you. Jesus died in our place. He died for us so that the justice of God might prevail, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thereby, we receive the righteousness of God, and he maintains his righteous stand for all the world to see. Well, let's pray as we transition to the Lord's Supper here. Father, we are, are thankful, O oh Lord, for the, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. I just thank you for the marvels of the way the Scripture comes together, of how the, the sacrifice of Jesus was foreknown before the world began. He was slain from the foundation of the world. God, they knew that we'd be redeemed in Christ before the world began. God, thereby allowing God to overlook transgressions. But Jesus died. He's died for our sins. And Father, we do thank you for that. We rejoice in that. We glory in that. And Lord, as we here this morning celebrate the Lord's Supper, God, it, it is in remembrance of you, everything that you've called us to be. But you also call us in 1 Corinthians 11 to search ourselves. And so I just even would encourage all of you here in the congregation to search yourselves and examine yourself. Are you a believer? Are you trusting in Jesus? Because if you are, this Lord's Supper is for you. But if for some reason there's sin in your heart, it's unconfessed, or you're just not right with God, or you're not believing in God, then... This really is not for you because this is for those who are trusting in Christ. And so if that's you, I would encourage you just to, just to look and examine your heart. For Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So it says, let a person examine himself and then eat the bread and drink the cup. Just encourage you to examine yourself. Just, just confess your sins. I mean, the, 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 the gospel 
isn't a promise tomorrow to make up your sin. The, the gospel is this, that right now you confess your sin and say, God, I have failed again. And I know for many of us, that's where we are. As Paul's going to talk in Romans 7 about the good that I do, I do not, the good that I want, I do not do, but I do the very evil that I hate. And the battle of sin in his heart and his mind because we're of the flesh. Serving the law of God with our mind, but with our flesh, the law of sin. I just encourage you to confess your sins before the Lord and realize that eating the bread and drinking the cup doesn't have any magical effect upon your soul other than it says, I am looking towards Jesus and he is my hope. He's my deliverer. He's the one who has redeemed me. He's the one who has propitiated my sin. Thanks be to God. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.